This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And now it's time for our Rule of Law series, where we tell stories about what happens when the rule of law is present or absent in our lives. And now Jesse Edwards brings us the story of a music producer in Nashville, Tennessee, who was shut down by the local government. What does Disney, Hewlett-Packard, Apple, Microsoft, Dell, Amazon, Google, and Harley-Davidson all have in common? They all started at home. 69% of entrepreneurs start their businesses at home, and there are 38 million of them across the United States. It's generating big money of $427 billion per year. Take our guest Liz Shaw, for example, a music producer who moved to Nashville in 1991. And Lidge is actually short for Elijah, and uh, it's easy to remember because Lidge rhymes with fridge because I'm cool like that, which is terrible, but now you won't forget. <laughs> Lidge has recorded with performers like John Oates, Jack White, Wilco, Adele, and the Zac Brown Band. He calls his Grammy Award-winning studio the Toy Box Studio. And it all started when his uncle showed him a few chords on the guitar. You know, for me, music was um, something that was definitely part of my family growing up. It wasn't like I really came from a big musical family necessarily. You know, my mom and my dad, my mom was a, an artist, a painter, and my dad was an um, international banker and, and really loved history. But both of them really had an appreciation for music. And so, I, you know, I grew up in, um, for the first six years, five years of my life in Brooklyn, New York. So, of course, I was seeing and being influenced by a lot of music. Um, But it really was not something that I considered very seriously until just before my 18th birthday in high school. And that summer, I remember picking up a guitar at our summer house, and my uncle showed me my first three chords. He was like, well, here's the three chords you need to know, um, Lidge, if you want to you know, be able to play a song. Just know the E chord, the A chord, and the B7 chord, and, and then everything's good to go. And so I learned those chords, and I remember coming back after that summer trip. My dad actually bought me a guitar for my birthday, and it, so I'm, I was just like banging out these three chords I knew uh, all night in my, in my room in the house, and my stepdad would even come in and, you know, Lidge, it's 1 o'clock in the morning, you need to, you need to pipe down. So it was like a Sears and Roebuck classical guitar that was actually, I think it was broken on the front or something. It was a little bit beat up, but it still sounded great and was good enough for me. When I went off to college to go study architecture, I, you know, I heard some guitars being strummed from down the hallway in the dorm room, and I just went knocking on the, you know, knocking on my neighbor's door in the dorm room, and I was like, "Hey, man, you guys playing guitar? You know, I play guitar." <laughs> And and that sort of sparked friendships, and I saw people writing songs and having fun with it for the first time, and you know, it just took me another four or five years before I finally realized that this is what I really love to do and, and decided to go to school for it. I actually found a school called MTSU, Middle Tennessee State University, and this is back in 1991. They had just built a wonderful recording program here. Um, it was like the big new building on campus. Now, you know, um, 30 years later almost, it's like the teeny building that's hard to find surrounded by much bigger buildings. <laughs> um, but I came down to Nashville, and I didn't know anything about 
music professionally. I didn't know, um, I didn't even know Nashville was really a music city, quote unquote. I knew, you know, I only learned later that it was like New York, uh, Los Angeles and Nashville was like the middle coast for making music. I just knew that there was a good school here and that making records was what I really wanted to do. So I came on down here and spent a couple of years in college and got a second bachelor's degree, this time a bachelor's of science in recording engineering. I did the recording program and then, you know, the logical next step was to get an internship at a studio. Um, and of course, I, uh, Murfreesboro, where the school is, is a little about, about half an hour south of Nashville. So I got an internship in a studio up here in Nashville and started coming up and, you know, seeing what it looked like to be in a professional studio. It was a beautiful place called Woodland Studios, which is still here in East Nashville and is now owned by uh, Gillian Welch and Dave Rollins. And they do um, some wonderful music. You know, they had done the soundtrack to Oh Brother, Why Art Thou? and come from that kind of old school appreciation of music. While I was doing my internship, I, uh, you know, saw a bunch of different records come in. Most of them were country records. You know, there was this new artist that came in called Keith Urban, and he came in to make a record. Um, Emmy Lou Harris came in to make a record. She did Wrecking Ball, and I met Daniel Lenoir in person, um, who's, you know, an incredible producer and, and has worked with U2 and Peter Gabriel and done all kinds of great records, Bob Dylan. And so I saw these great records happening, um, and then these two guys came in, and they were doing a really kind of a very different sounding record from one of the other studio rooms. Door was open, and I kept hearing all this cool music come out. And it was an artist named uh, Jill Sobule, who's still a brilliant songwriter and making great records today. Um, but they had this record with uh, a single that came out called I Kissed a Girl, which was actually the original version of that song a decade before Katy Perry had her big hit in the 2000s. Um, and I just remember I met, I met these guys that were producing the album and they would come out to the lounge and have coffee and I, I'd get a chance to meet them and they seemed real cool. And I finished my internship and then I was sort of like, you know, didn't know what I was going to do next. I ended up going by the record store one day and I see the, the finished album, Jill Sobule on the shelves and I listened to it and I was like, Oh my God, this, this record's brilliant. So I found out what the studio was and I actually called them up. Uh, just getting the number out of the yellow pages and they the producers answered the phone and invited me to come get my first job making records over there um, and this is a place called Alex the Great across town in Berry Hill from a passion of music to figuring out how to do that for a living from paying his internship dues to a paying job in the recording business Liz Shaw is about to live out his dream that is until the local government gets involved and we'll continue with Lidge Shaw's story. And what a story it is here on Our American Stories. To hear everything that we do on Our American Stories, visit us online at ouramericannetwork.org. Enjoy unlimited access to every story shared with your friends. And follow us on Facebook at ouramericannetwork.org.
And we continue here on Our American Stories with the story of Lyd Shaw, a record producer who, as you're about to hear, was shut down by his local government. Here again is Jesse Edwards with this unbelievable story from Nashville, Tennessee. When we left off, Liz had gone from a dreamer to a doer. After realizing his dream of being a music producer was in reach, he went back to school, went through an internship, and landed a paying gig in the industry. All at a time when analog was out and digital was in. And so I started to see a lot of, I guess, like sort of like the birth of home studios uh, in a way there. This was a commercial facility, but they were able to build a recording studio and make records with super affordable gear, the same kind of gear that was available for people who wanted to start home studios and, you know, DIY uh, musicians and artists that wanted to record their own records using tools like ADATs, which were these um, digital tape recorders that would use video cassettes to record the music on VHS cassettes. And they, so it made it really affordable to start making records and it's before computers were introduced. And so they built a studio with this and then they had, you know, an affordable mixer called a Mackie mixer. And I just really got excited about the kind of music and the kind of people and the kind of bands and artists that I was seeing come through the studio there. And simultaneously all through the rest of the nineties and into the two thousands, we had this, global introduction of the home studio as an alternative to, you know, the the big kind of expensive commercial studio. And there were tons of producers, engineers, bands, artists that were all just embracing this new technology with computers becoming more and more affordable and more powerful. Now you could buy, you know, a Macintosh computer from the store or a PC, set it up in a spare room in your house and plug in, you know, a cable to have a little interface, plug in a couple of mics, and bam, you've got what basically sounded pretty close to a professional recording studio right in your own home. So I saw all these people doing that and building studios around Nashville inside homes, and I thought, you know, this is really for me. I really love doing independent music. I love working with local artists. Um, You know, I still want to, you know, have a big award one day working with a major label artist as well but this seems like really the avenue to be able to focus on the art that i love about making music and not be totally just kind of drawn into the big commercial corporate machine for making music and so that really appealed to me and i remember probably around 97 or so I decided, 98 maybe, I decided that I wanted to have a five-year plan. And I thought to myself, I was like, you know what? I want to have my own home recording studio. That's sort of my five-year goal. You know, have a home, have a studio, be able to wake up, grab your coffee in the morning, go straight into the studio and start making records. And that's exactly what Liz did. He bought a house in Nashville where he could build a professional soundproof studio. It had a a well-sealed basement. In fact, that was one of the first things I did is I called up a buddy of mine, um, uh, Ken Coomer, who played drums with Wilco at the time. And he came over and did me a huge favor. And I just said, dude, will you, will you do me a favor? I want to, I want to buy this house and I want to make sure that I can record in it, but I want to make sure I don't bother the neighbors. Will you just beat the crap out of your snare drum down in the basement? And I'm going to go walk around the house and see if I can hear it. And so he, he did that for me. Thank you, Ken. And, um, you know, I walked around and it was like, wow, that's 
This is perfect. Liz Shaw invested thousands of dollars to build his award-winning studio. And this isn't your friend's closet that was converted into a so-called podcast studio either. This studio kept his bills paid and his passion alive. And then... I've made records happily and successfully for a decade before the city sent me a letter in 2015 that said, you have to cease and desist being the Toy Box Studio and operating as a commercial studio in a residence. A man's livelihood shut down over a code violation. If you're zoned residential, you can get permission to work from home or have you know, a home occupancy permit, but you're not allowed to have a customer or a client come over to your house. And that applies to everybody who's doing anything in Nashville. If you're a nice little old lady in the neighborhood and you want to teach piano to the other kids in the neighborhood, that's not legal according to the Nashville um, Codes Ordinance. But the nightmare was just beginning for simply operating a successful home business in Nashville, Tennessee. Liz Shaw was now facing home inspections, warrants, and even censorship. So I got the cease and desist letter, and then it said I had, I think, 30 days to be in compliance. And so that was it was that 30 days of not sleeping, talking to people, um, figuring out what to do, having an interview in the local newspaper. And then I got a call a month later from the city codes inspector, and she said, you know, okay, are you ready to schedule an inspection? And I said, what do you mean schedule an inspection? Um, I got your letter. I'm trying to be in compliance, you know, help help clarify what that means and help me understand so that I can, can you know, be in compliance because this is my home. This is where I live. I have a home studio. This is what, that's what I do. And she said, well, we need to come do a walkthrough inspection and confirm that you've removed all recording equipment from the premises. And I was just like, whoa, slow down. You know, this is my home. This is where I live. I can't do that. You know, I can't just move on. I mean, what am I going to do? Uh, this is this is my home. And so she um, said, well, let me check. I'll check with the, the supervisor. And she called back a little bit later. And this is the actual audio of the chilling voicemail that the county official left. Hi, this is with the Coast Department. I just checked with our zoning administrator, and he did say you don't have to remove your equipment. But if any, if there are any further complaints about uh, the use of this property as a recording studio for anyone other than you, and that does include your podcast, then we will go uh, straight to a warrant and obtain a court order. Thank you. Goodbye. You know, I don't want somebody knocking on my door and throwing me in handcuffs in front of my daughter just because I'm trying to make records. So what do you do in a situation like that? Thousands of dollars, a decade of work, regular income, realized dreams, gone. How do you react? First thing you do is freak out. Um, I remember just being in a state of shock. I don't think I slept for a week. I didn't even know if I wanted to tell anybody yet because I was thinking... You know, it's a devastating thing to be told to stop working when the work you do is the very thing that feeds you and feeds your family and pays your bills and keeps a roof over your head. Uh, but I knew I needed to be able to have support of friends and family. So, you know, I finally started talking to a couple of friends about it. Um, so I did an interview in the Tennessean newspaper, which I believe got front page um, right around Thanksgiving that year. 
And that just seemed to generate quite a lot of interest, um, you know, and quite a lot of passionate defense of this whole issue. Keith Diggs from the Institute of Justice reached out to me, and we had a phone call and began talking about the issue. And, you know, he really expressed interest in um, coming to my aid and, and, and defending me and, you know, maybe talking about ways that we could do something about this case, uh, because it really was at the core of the Institute for Justice's cause and mission statement. And it was shortly after that, too, that uh, Braden Busek uh, reached out to me from the Beacon Center here in Nashville. And same thing, that was also at the core of their mission statement, is to find people and help defend um, property rights, economic liberties, and, you know, constitutional liberties for people right here in Tennessee. You know, I couldn't even afford to do anything about this. It just it seemed astronomical to try and defend myself um, and hire a lawyer for something that just seemed so uh, hard to figure out in the first place. After talking to the Institute for Justice and then talking to the Beacon Center, I thought, well, if you guys are really good at what you do and you're really good at what you do and we all want a, the same end result, why don't we just all work together? So that um, sort of sparked an idea for us to just meet simultaneously, which we did, and everybody seemed to be on the same page, and um, it was pretty incredible. I mean, I feel very fortunate that such a bad thing could happen to me, but in the end, such a good thing could happen that all of a sudden I end up with this, you know, incredible legal team coming to my my aid to try and help out on this issue, um, and I like to refer to them now as the League of Justice. Thanks to the Institute for Justice and the Beacon Center, Liz Shaw stands a fighting chance of getting his livelihood back but he still has a long way to go in the courts. And when we continue, we'll hear more of Lyd Shaw's story, but he's got the Institute for Justice on his side, a band of legal litigators that, my goodness, defend property rights and property interests all over this country. Ordinary folks facing, well, let's just say extraordinary measures by their local, state, and national governments. When we continue more of Liz Shaw's story, here on Our American Story. continue with our American stories and we conclude now the story of Lyd Shaw, a music producer who was forced to close his small business by the local government in Nashville, Tennessee. And I just keep thinking about getting a call like that, a message left on your phone machine, no less. It's just so cold. Here again is Jesse Edwards. From a young musician with a dream to a professional producer at his successful home recording studio, which won a Grammy Award, Liz Shaw was shut down by his county government for operating a business in a residential zone. After being threatened with home inspections, arrest warrants, and having his equipment confiscated, Liz went to the press and found overwhelming support, not only from his community, but by legal groups like the Institute for Justice and the Beacon Center, who were helping him and other home-based business owners in the Nashville area 
get back to what they do for a living. It really feels so good to have that kind of support and have a team that's on my side. And more importantly, you know, one of the things that they really do um, that's helped me out tremendously is educate me and help me understand how, um, you know, I'm in a position of importance for, 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 you know, fighting this battle and how my needs are relevant and my rights as a citizen, as a homeowner, um, as a as a single dad, as a parent, those are all legitimate and real rights that really do need to be defended, um, you know, pretty pretty strongly, and are worth worth defending because I think it's very easy for us at times to just kind of you know cower down under under the oppression of being told you can't do something and just assume. Uh, you know, a lot of people, a lot of us assume that, that we must be doing something wrong if somebody told us that we're doing something wrong, and that may not be the case. And now it's time to fight back. But there are certain loopholes Lige and his legal team must jump through to proceed in this nightmarishly boring court. Nashville does allow a specific plan rezoning, SP rezoning of residential properties. It has allowed it, and it still does allow it. And so we realized we're going to need to go through that process first and apply for an SP rezoning before we can actually, you know, go to the next level. And in other words, that's the first thing to try. So we went through that whole process throughout the entire year of 2017, which involved uh, finding actually a local land use attorney and filed for rezoning. That had to go in front of the planning commission for approval. Um it got disapproved. Then, you know, we went through this whole process and, and, and I think there were a few different times we had to go up and to city codes for my rezoning application to be heard. And on the final one, it was a very long city council meeting and they spent quite a long time deliberating over some um, short-term rental issues, basically the, the Airbnb topic here. And then they finally put mine up for vote when everybody was just dying to go home and it voted so fast, and they um, there were 14 yeses from city council members, um, and they had really talked about this stuff um, quite at length, and everybody seemed to agree that at the core of what I was trying to do, it was okay and should be allowed, but they just couldn't quite agree on how the city should, you know, what the process was for allowing it. And so then 20 city council members voted no, Therefore, it didn't pass. It needs, I think, a two-thirds majority for an SP rezoning. Hitting that brick wall of bureaucracy, Lige, the Institute for Justice, and the Beacon Center filed a lawsuit against the city of Nashville with a co-plaintiff. My co-plaintiff is Pat Rayner, who is a retired hairstylist. She's been doing hair for clients for her whole life and their lives. And she just wants to be able to continue to support herself in her retirement because she can't stop working. She's already 69 years old. And she just wanted to be able to continue to cut hair for those clients out of her home. And she also got shut down by the city. Um, so we teamed up with the law firms and filed a lawsuit against the city of Nashville defending our constitutional right to be able to continue working from our home and support ourselves and support our family and pay our bills and you know, make an honest living. We're basing our entire lawsuit on defending our constitutional right under the Tennessee Constitution 
to be able to make an honest living from our homes and that specifically there's a discrimination going on by the city of Nashville, by Davidson County, by Metro in saying we're going to allow some people to have home businesses and see clients like home daycares, neighborhood daycares. We already allow um, short-term rentals. We, you know, people can put up Airbnbs. In fact, you know, on, on a limited scale now, um, people are able to put up Airbnbs and have short-term rental property even if they don't live there as a landlord. And um, there are properties that are rezoned, have been traditionally, uh, were just again this year for historical rezoning, which basically says, you know, we're going to recognize this property as being of historical significance. And with that, it means that you can operate as a commercial business out of this location and you can have customers and clients come over and, you know, do things like have events or have an operating business and that sort of thing. Um, all of which sound like per perfectly reasonable uh, use cases for allowing a home business. You know, obviously we need daycares. Um, people do need to be able to have a place to sleep in a town that's affordable. And I think that people should be able to make a room or make their house available for somebody to rent on a short-term basis if it's a positive thing. And, of course, we, wanna, we want to upkeep historical locations and properties all across the city because that's how you keep the, the heart and the spirit of the city. But at the same time, it's an infringement and a discrimination uh, against us, it's an infringement of our constitutional right to be able to also do that. You know, everybody who wants to be able to support themselves from their home, particularly home studios, because there's lots all over Nashville, um, hairstylists like like Pat's, uh, like like her home, that should be allowed as well. And it's not fair if the city says, hey, you can't do it. Everybody else can, but you can't do it. Liz Shaw is continuing his fight in the courts as we speak. And we will follow up once a judge has reached a conclusion as to whether or not he can be allowed to conduct business in the privacy of his own home. Despite all the drama, he hasn't lost his love for Nashville. He's staying and fighting for everyone else who wants to run their own business from their house. When I finished school and I was, you know, first thinking about where I wanted to live, my first thought was I'm going to go back to St. Louis where my friends are and my last band was. And, you know, you know that's where I want to go make records. And it was that process of seeing people who were really serious and professional about making music and the art of recording music here that made me realize, oh, wait a minute, Nashville's a great place to be. And, you know, it's this wonderful place that has a real, like, it's it's a real growing metropolis, but it's always had kind of a small town feel in a lot of ways. I mean, it's also a place where you could still find a home that you could afford and maybe you've got some green grass and a yard and, you know, maybe you can make music in your, your home studio and it's not going to bother anybody because, for one, I mean, my studio's soundproofed, so literally not going to bother anybody. But also, on you know, at, at the core of being in Music City is that people who live here love music, so therefore they just, you know, they want to hear more of it, not less of it. To visit Liz Shaw's Toy Box Studio online, check out all that he does at thetoyboxstudio.com. You can hear the music he mixes, check out his podcast, and send him some words of encouragement. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And great job on that, Jesse. And that story hits close to home. My sister and her husband worked a home studio in northern New Jersey. 
and have a home studio in Los Angeles, California, and they do all of their business from their home. So many of us, so many more of us are doing the same. And I love that you heard a musician say, it's my constitutional right to be able to make an honest living in my home. Indeed it is. And thanks to IJ, Institute for Justice, what a group, if you care to, give them money because they're helping fight, well, fight laws that just make no sense. IJ.org is how you can help. Lyd Shaw's story, a remarkable freedom story, property rights story, and rule of law story here on Our American Story. American stories. And now our own Alex Cortez brings us a moving story about a subject we love to tell stories about, and that's human freedom. Mike Gonzalez was born in 1960 in Cuba. Growing up in Cuba under communism was really an experience. Uh, I get sometimes I chuckle when People say, well, you must have great memories. And my memories are awful. The, the corner store, I never saw anything on the shelves. Never, never. When meat would arrive or when potatoes would arrive or when beans would arrive, people would get a heads up and lines would form at the bodega or at the butcher's. And you'd have to wait in line for two hours or so. And then... The, the goods would, would fly off the shelves. A family would receive, for example, the right to buy, putting this out of thin air, five pounds of meat per adult per month. So you, everybody would buy the five pounds because that's what happens in the communism. You buy everything you can, and then a black market develops. Then the, the black market is the only functioning market in Cuba, and it's against the law. You can go to prison. But everybody did it. Everybody, except for like maybe the high officials in the Communist Party, but even people who professed to be communists had to engage in the black market. So my father gave up smoking so he could exchange the cigarettes that he had the right to buy for milk for me and my sister. That's one example. So the contraband would take place in the back of our house, and I, at the tender age of seven or eight, have to be the watch guard to make sure I would sit in the porch, make sure that the local committee would not arrive and witness the exchange and put everybody in prison. You know, periodic show trials would take place of people who have been caught dealing in the black market to show that this was a thing that you, you had better not try because you had to consume exactly the goods that the government told you to consume. My parents were breaking the law, but you know, you have this principle that when you have a law that violates natural rights, your natural right to property, to have property that you call your own, you don't really have to go along with the law. So what you have in communist societies is a constant state of lawlessness. 
Mike's family could have had a much easier life if they just went along with communism. His dad was a law student who dropped out of school when they tried to make him join the party. But he did find a small measure of relief when he could listen to Voice of America, the U.S. government radio station whose mission is to provide objective news in countries like his where you just can't get it. VOA pretty much kept my father sane. It was his only source of, of news. He had a huge, back then, this is mid-60s, the radios were huge to get shortwave. So every night, he would listen to it intently, but with, with the, the sound very, you know, very, very low, so he would have to put his ear to it. And the reason for that was is that there were neighborhood snitches. There was a committee assigned to every block, the Committee of the Revolution, and, and if anybody heard English coming out of a house or a VOA broadcast, my father could have been sent to prison because the government wanted to have a 100% monopoly on information, and in fact did. The first thing it did was take over all the magazines, all the newspapers, all the radio stations, and all the TV stations. I still get a, a warm feeling in my heart when I remember the tune that the Voice of America would have before their broadcasts. This is the Voice of America, coming to you from Washington, D.C., I will never forget it. I will never forget that tune, because I heard it every night. Mike also heard his parents talk about whether to try to escape this tyranny that was preventing his diabetic dad from receiving a proper diet. My mother did not uh, convince my father that they had to go until like 1964, 1965. He was 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 very much of a, a Cuban patriot. He loved Cuba and said, no, no, I'm not going to leave, and then uh, realized that to save me and to save my sister, he would have to do the ultimate, which was to leave the land of his birth, the land that he loved. And it became too late. By the time by the, the, time the Cuban government uh, did not want professionals to leave, uh, did not want anyone to leave. This is how communism operates. So his diabetes got worse. He was in and out of hospital constantly. I remember children were not allowed in hospitals oftentimes, so I remember having to run in and sneak in to see my father because I hadn't seen him in weeks. These are not tales that I really want to recall. But when he had his final heart attack at the age of uh, 44 in 1972, um, my father could still be alive, but he died almost 50 years ago. According to my sister, the medical equipment that could have saved his life went to a Soviet military officer who was staying in the hospital. The Soviets were everywhere, propping up their communist little brother. <laughs> the, you know, it's funny how everything just went to the Soviets. My family had a couple of places in the, in the countryside, which obviously were taken away. The, one of the farms that we had where my, my grandparents used to go and stay at was taken away, obviously, from the family. Everything was taken away. All the property was taken away. And it became a place to entertain Soviet generals for a bit. You know, Castro always liked to say that uh, he had gotten rid of what he called colonialism, American colonialism, which was not the case. But what he introduced was real Russian colonialism. We were allowed to leave as soon after he died in 1972. I left my uh, my maternal 
grandmother, a stout woman, and uh, she had just lost her son, her only son, three months earlier. And uh, saying goodbye to my sister and I was more than she could bear. But she, she did not want to leave. So she, she lost her mind a few months after we left. And then we went over and uh, said goodbye to my Spanish grandparents who were beside themselves in sorrow. Then as we went to the airport, my mother instructed my sister and I, if I'm stopped at any moment, I want you to run to the plane. It's an Iberian plane, it's an Iberian airliner, and claim asylum. It's Spanish territory. Just leave me behind if they stop me for any reason. So the whole thing was the height of anxiety, not just because you're saying goodbye to the people that you have grown up with all your life, but you're saying goodbye to the country in which you have grown, and then you have this extreme anxiety that your mother may be taken, may be arrested, all the way to the last second that you're on Cuban territory. But I tell you, when that airliner took off from Cuban soil, that everyone on that plane, the exhilaration was beyond belief. They had managed to do what everybody on the island wanted to do, escape. They first went to Spain and two years later arrived in Queens, New York. Mike has lived the American dream. Freely working as a reporter for almost 20 years, including with the Wall Street Journal, and now is with the Heritage Foundation, fighting for the freedoms that he appreciates more than most. In very quick succession, I lost my, my father, my entire family, and the country I had been born in. But again, I was very lucky. This, uh, I, this, I want to make this extremely clear that you're talking to, to a lucky man, one of the lucky ones. You know, I will never return to Cuba. I would, I have this semi-joke that I will return under two conditions. First, the communist government must give the, the 10 million people in Cuba freedom and elections. And the second one is that they must return to us everything they stole. And since <laughs> these two conditions are never going to be met, I will never return. And my grandfather once asked, you know, why don't you come? I'd like to see you. And I said, you know, I can't. I just can't. And uh, he understood. But I did do something for him. I did, before I married my wife of 20 years now, I said, um, you know, why don't you go to Havana and seek their blessing? Just like I asked her father for her hand. So she went on her British passport, met my grandparents, and they appreciated that very much. And what a story, and that's Mike Gonzalez doing the talking. And he works at the Heritage Foundation after having worked for many, many years at the Wall Street Journal. To learn more about this great American voice, check out Mike's book, The Plot to Change America, How Identity Politics Divided America, at Amazon.com. That's The Plot to Change America. Go to Amazon.com. Or, heck, go to a bookstore and buy it. By the way, Mike and so many immigrants came to America to escape countries that forced people into different categories. And then they've sadly found 
some Marxist agitators here who've also created categories to divide people. It's a little-known story that Mike's told in his fascinating new book, The Plot to Change America. Once again, pick it up at Amazon.com. Mike Gonzalez's story, here on Our American Stories. is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. Your stories are some of our favorites. And today, Robbie brings us the story of Fawn Weaver. Her father, Frank Wilson, was a legendary Motown producer who helped establish Motown Records' West Coast presence. However, around the time Fawn was born, the Wilsons' lives drastically changed. Here's Fawn to tell us her story. It's time to make a change. My father was one of the original Motown hit makers. There were always Motown folks in the house. Everywhere you would turn, there were gold and platinum records and and a billboard that now just tracks the top, you know, 100 or top 200 hits. They used to track producers in the nation and who had the most hits. And and I remember looking at one of the placards one day and going, "Hey, my dad was the number two producer in the nation." But the the irony is, is that even though we always had these people around. We were not a part of it. The year that I was born, 1976, my father decided not to sign another contract with Barry Gordy's and Motown. Not not for any reason that you might hear out there in regard to Barry's contracts and 360 deals and all the rest of that stuff. My father was one of a, a very few number of those in the very, very beginning that may, always maintained his masters. It truly was just, he felt as though he had been called to ministry and away from the music business. So if you can imagine that the year that I was born, my mother and father had this um, massive home on the top of the hill in Hollywood Hills, and all the celebrities would come to their home. He'd throw these huge parties and all the rest of that. And then he decides, I am going to not sign another contract. I've been called by God. God will make a way for everything. Well, meanwhile, he doesn't have money coming in. So you have two people who decided, all right, God called us. We're going to leave all the money that we have been making, but we still have all these bills. (laughs) 
we still have this lifestyle we still have these fancy cars and so they it was an interesting time because if you can imagine the amount of stress that they were then under because you've got all these bills you have all these people that are looking at you as being this wealthy family uh, but meanwhile you don't really have gas for your car and they had this uh, store at the bottom of the hill called, I think it was called the Country Mart. They had a grocery tab there where they would get all their groceries and you know put it in the book and then they would pay at the end of the month and keep going. And, and so they did that for several months after this transition. And, and finally the store owner said to my dad one day, hey Frank, I've noticed you've not paid your bill in a while. And so my parents had to figure out, all right, we, we, we feel like we've been called by God to minister to the people that are in the industry where we used to be, but we don't have the money to pay for basic necessities. And this was the life I was born into. <laughs> and so they sold their home in Hollywood Hills. They moved to Pasadena. And so we grew up in this beautiful home where people thought we had all this money, but then we didn't really have furniture and we didn't have sort of basic stuff. And uh, I remember learning for the first time that we actually technically on paper had money because we were we would go to school every day. We'd have like these terrible lunches with, you know, nothing good. And I wanted to get food like all the other kids and they had like these lunch cards where they got all of the best foods every day. And so I went back to my mom and I said, hey, you know, the kids, they get these great lunches. We have these terrible lunches. If we don't have money, can I just get those lunches? And my mom said, we can't because we make too much money for those. And I was like, what are you talking about? We don't have any money. So that, that, was, my, uh, that was my upbringing of absolute confusion. Really, I, I look back at that and it formed every aspect of how I live, of how I do business, of my marriage, of every part of it, because I require equality from every person, no matter your background, no matter your race, no matter how much money you came from or have, everybody is equal and that is how I treat everyone. There is no delineation for me. And I think the more I live, the more I realize that that's a gift because a lot of people count themselves out, meaning they will not go for the job or they won't start the business or they won't bet on themselves because they have these fears that I simply do not have. It was an odd situation to be in where people on the outside are looking at us and are like, yeah, those Wilsons have a lot of money, but inside we're doing flips and cartwheels in this massive size living room because there's really nothing in it but a piano. <laughs> and, and, and a, you know, and a plug-in TV. It's funny because I am, I am utterly unimpressed with people in general, including myself. And I think that's because of the way that I grew up. Like I don't, I, I have been in the room with sitting presidents of the United States and I call them by their first name and uh, my husband he said babe you're supposed to call them president so-and-so but I'm not wired that way because I grew up with Uncle Stevie and Uncle Smokey I did not I didn't grow up in such a way where I saw people at on levels everybody to me was equal and my father had this amazing gift 
of treating the president the same exact way as he treated a janitor. And so I have taken that with me. And so I don't show any more respect for a person that is at the top than I do that's at the bottom, which very much so confuses people at the top, I think. I'm sure it does. And you're listening to Fawn Weaver, her dad, Frank Wilson, impresario at Motown Records, and just suddenly drops the hammer and says we're living for God. And so much for the material world, we'll figure it all out. But it gave her a tremendous sense that she had nothing to fear. And my goodness, it's the greatest gift you can give a kid is to take away irrational fear. It's a disease, actually, fear. It can paralyze all of us. And what a gift a dad could give a daughter to treat presidents and janitors the same. More of this remarkable voice, Fawn Weaver's story, and her family's story, too, here on Our American Story. back with our American stories and with the story of Fawn Weaver. Her father had left the music industry after having a successful producing career at Motown Records so that he and his wife could go into ministry. Fawn was thrown into the confusion because her family appeared to have money, but of course really didn't. However, the lessons she learned, particularly about equality, they stick with her to this day. We return to Fawn to hear about what it's like to be the kid of a minister. I tease my parents, my father when he was alive, but I still tease my mother that we were his, uh, their pastor's guinea pigs. And so, so pretty much because they, they came from being in the entertainment industry with wild parties and sex and, and drugs and rock and roll and all the rest of that stuff. And then you come into this Southern Baptist type of situation, like out of all of the denominations to choose, they chose Southern Baptist. I absolutely would not listen to anybody. <laughs> the, unless, unless you could actually make the argument to me as to why what you are saying is correct or why what you are saying I should do, I would not do it. And so I had authoritative parents who said, well, you should do it because I said to do it. I go, yeah, so that's not gonna work for me. I'm gonna need you to tell me the thinking behind why you're telling me to do what you're doing. So needless to say, I bumped heads with my parents uh, more than a little bit. And it, it really came to a head when I was 15 years old and I left home. And I left home and I moved in with some folks that were in the projects, uh, an area in Watts called Jordan Downs. So there are sort of two projects, main projects. One was home of the Grape Street Crips, which is where I was. And then across the way was Nickerson Gardens, home of the Bounty Hunter Bloods. And so I, at 15 years old, move into this environment, not really knowing anything about it, only knowing that these kids at high school, they had parents that let them do whatever they wanted. and I wanted freedom <laughs> and I wanted to make my own decision. So I move into the hood and realize very quickly, number one, uh, the hood has a lot of cockroaches. <laughs> I had never seen those before. But the second thing was I realized very quickly how I did not fit in. And I did not fit in and, and for a couple of reasons. One of which my, my grandmother is from Germany. Uh, my grandfather 
was fighting in World War II and he was stationed in Germany. My grandmother is a blonde hair, blue eye woman growing up under Hitler's regime who does not see things the way that Hitler saw them, obviously, because she fell in love with my grandfather. Uh, she couldn't speak English, he couldn't speak German. And the entire time they were alive, neither one of them could explain how in the world they got together when neither one spoke the other's language. And so they got married, they had my mother, and my mother's very fair skin as, as a result of that relationship. So then I am not fair skinned, but I've got you know bright green eyes and light colored hair. Um, and, and so when I moved into Jordan Downs, I didn't realize I looked different, but I was at a concert at, in the projects one day and literally the guy from stage, he's rapping and I'm enjoying, and he looks me dead in the eyes with all these people around and he says, we have a half breed in the house. I didn't even know what a half breed was. <laughs> and, and I'm looking around and everyone's looking at me and it was a very pivotal moment for me because I realized, okay, I don't, I, I, I don't fit in. And I did not realize I didn't fit in. So I'm in an environment where I'm surrounded by African-Americans, but realized they didn't see me uh, as fully African-American. And that was an interesting lesson. So I go from there and I go and I, I stay with another person who I had met through school, similar situation. And, uh, and then she had a abusive boyfriend who came over with a knife one day, so that didn't work out. And so I moved at the age of 17, almost about to be 18, into a home called Children of the Night. But I didn't fit in there either because Children of the Night is specifically a homeless shelter for people who were prostitutes and people have been trafficked and things of that nature. And so I'm in this environment because it's the only place that had a bed for me. And rather than go back home where I would, you know, go toe to toe with my parents, I really wanted to set out on a life of my own. So I made that decision. But children of the night, when you turn 18, you must move. And so as soon as I turned 18, I moved to a place called Covenant House, which is an amazing organization for kids who are 18 and older who find themselves homeless for whatever reason. There's no judgment. So we're all in this, this location, Covenant House, and they had a program where it's set up where you go out every day and you look for a job and you come back. And if you get a job, they hold your money for you, basically in a savings account to allow you to save for your own place, which I absolutely loved. There were two things that I discovered while being at Covenant House. Uh, number one, the, the current theme of I didn't fit in and I, I did not seem to be the same as the people around me. And I learned that on my first day of being there, we all had to go out and look for jobs. And so we all went out, we looked for jobs, we came back and we sat around this sort of campfire. And this, I mean, this isn't a small organization. This is over a hundred kids that are, or, you know, 18 to I'd say early twenties. We're all sitting around at least a hundred of us and everyone is talking about their challenges of getting a job that day and how they weren't able to get a job that day. And I literally sat silent. And the reason I sat silent is I went out to get a job and I came back with four. And the second thing that I discovered is in my relationship with money, I didn't care about it other than to have the ability to have to be able to be free 
and to have my own place and things of that nature. So I saved up money very quickly and was able to move out because every day I went to multiple jobs and I saved my money and I went out, I was able to get my own place and to begin uh, living my own life. But that was my road through my teenage years, <laughs> through my teenage years. And then I started my own company. After saving money and working multiple jobs, rather than going and working for someone else, I realized, hmm, so far I've not been like everyone else. I've been a leader in every single situation I've been in since I was a kid. I think this is the way I'm wired. And so I started a PR and special events firm. And not surprising because of the circles that I was in, that when I did special events, there was usually some type of celebrity involved in it. And so in that regard, I definitely had a, a head start in that I also, the, my office was actually my father's office in Pasadena, he wasn't using it, and it was just sort of a vacant office. I said, hey, I'm gonna start a business. Can, you're not using this office, can I, <laughs> can I take it over for my own company? And so that is, that is what I did, and that's how I began. I was quite young, and like most young people, you don't know what you're doing, and so you're going to fail a few times before you actually get it right. In that instance, I hired, I think, I think I had 10 people working for me before I was like 20. <laughs> it was just absolutely absurd. And so I've, I've, I've learned how to do things better, to say the least. Leaving home so early and having to really fend for myself it gave me a, a, I think it underscored the confidence that I already had. And I don't think that that would have happened if I had gone the normal route of staying at home until I was 18 or 17 and going to college and four years in college and, and going that path. I don't think that the way that I look at life, my optimism in looking at everything and saying, no matter how difficult things are, they can absolutely get better and they will get better. And I know this because I've been there. And so having that background, I think allows me to be, my husband refers to me or when he's describing to me to other people, he'll, he'll refer to me as unflappable. And I think that that comes from that upbringing and everything that I saw once I left home. And you've been listening to Fawn Weaver and Unflappable Indeed. My goodness, to, to leave home at that age and to experience what she experienced and to do it, well, just to do it and to be free and to create and start her own adult life and to get there quickly. I've got a 15-year-old daughter who sounds a lot the same, actually. And my goodness, what she learned in, in, in the hood, as she put it, she said, she said that she heard these words, we have a half-breed in the house. And my goodness, what a thing to hear. And these charges, I hope, down the road will fall on more hollow and deaf ears as time persists in this great country. When we come back, more on this remarkable story, Fawn Weaver's story, here on Our American Stories.
And we're back with the conclusion of Fawn Weaver's story here on Our American Stories. She was born to Motown royalty, but left home at an early age, realized she was different, and not just different, but like didn't fit in anywhere. By the age of 20, having forged an identity of her own, she decided to own her own company, and that's so impressive, meeting payroll at the age of 20, and has been an investor and business owner ever since. Here she is to tell us about her career. I think that failure is is an incredible teacher. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I think success is a better teacher. However, <laughs> I do believe that there are certain lessons that those who fail early on, on my phone, the very first picture that is on there, if you open up my album, says, fail harder. And I have this true belief that if you wake up every single day and you give every day your all and you are not afraid to fail, what you're able to achieve is remarkable. And I wake up and and, uh, folks will look at the way that I do things and and think that I am fearless, which which is not true. That's not accurate. I am not fearless. I simply do not allow fear to dictate what I do and do not do. Every morning when I wake up, I am very clear about why I am here. And to have that purpose-driven life is one of the greatest gifts I think any of us are given if we really lean into that. So for me, I would say the failure of my first company, the failure of my second company, the failure of my third company. And I never stopped trying until I found the space that worked for me. The irony of it all is every single thing that I did that I failed in is what I am using now. It is what has allowed for my company now and the way that I do things for us to grow so quickly, for for us to be the fastest growing independent American whiskey brand in US history does not just happen. That is literally everything that I learned from every failure is now working all together to create success. And I think that that's the way that it works. The PR and special events business, well, the beauty is, is that every every business, every brand that I've ever invested in, that I've ever run strategy for, I use PR as the number one way to ta- talk about the brand. I will not sell something I do not absolutely believe in. And so the ability to share the story behind a brand is something that I honed back then. And it is something that I rely on now. My second company was called City of David and it was a Christian clothing company. And it was really me putting my heart on on my wear. It was one of those things where I had an idea and it was a great idea, but I did not put together a plan to roll it out. I put together a plan to basically do the product line, but I didn't put together the plan to roll it out. And it's very similar to my PR and special events firm is I knew how to do it. I knew what I was doing, but I didn't put together a plan to actually succeed and to know 
what could the overhead be that I could afford versus taking on 10 employees right out the gate. And so with each of these things, it's not that the idea would not have been a successful idea. It's that I did not take the time to put together all of the pieces that would have been required to succeed. My third was an investment in a fine dining restaurant. Everything was clicking on all cylinders on that particular one. But what I discovered on that one and uh, on another investment that I've made is you can't really invest in a product or a type or you have to invest in the person. And if the person, if that founder that you're investing in is not 100% ready, then the business will fail. And after years of backing other people, it was time for a change, whether Fawn wanted it or not. On a vacation that was meant to be a step away from work, Fawn came across the story of Nathan Nearest Green, the former slave who was the first black master distiller in the U.S., and the first master distiller of his close friend, a man named Jack Daniels. And since discovering Uncle Nearest's story, she's begun a book, secured movie rights, started the fastest growing and most awarded new American whiskey brand in United States history, and much more. But I have, I have always intentionally had my name in the background, uh, not in the background, like non-existent. And the one thing that the Uncle Nearest team, we, they laugh at, but it's a, it's a constant conversation, is me trying to get to the background again. Uh, this is a brand that when I, when I founded it, the second person I hired was a spokesperson. I was never, ever, ever wanting to be in the forefront. When we sent out the press releases, no one would speak to the spokesperson. Everyone wanted to talk to the founder. So it thrust me into a space that I never really wanted to be in, and I actually still don't want to be in it. One of the things that I discovered early on in this process, because initially I had put so much weight to the book and the movie and thinking that's the way it, it needed to be told, that was what was important. And then I went with Nearest's family to go see Hidden Figures. It was absolutely phenomenal. We sat there, we cried, we laughed, we cheered, we jeered, we did all of that. And then when we left out, we were in the lobby of the, of the theater and I remember telling Nearest's descendants, I said, this is how the movie has to be. And so we leave and we're so excited and, and I actually secured the agents, the same agency who repped both the book for Hidden Figures and put together the deal for the film. However, a couple months after, I remember trying to remember the name of the people that Octavia Spencer, Taraji P. Henson, and Janelle Monet played. Those were the three stars. And I absolutely could not remember the name of the people who they were playing. So you have an entire film that swept the world and everybody was learning about these three women. And it was just an incredible film. And yet I couldn't name any of the people who the stars played. The challenge with entertainment at this time, in this day and age, is it's replaced very easily. So what is the story of today 
couple years from now, nobody's going to remember who that person was. It's going to be replaced with other entertainment. And what we realized is the reason why Jack Daniel, Jim Beam, Johnny Walker, the reason why we're still talking about all of those guys is we're still drinking from bottles with their names on it. That's where we shifted and we began to pivot from the book and the movie having as great of a significance. We're still going to do it, but it is obviously this is kind of taking a little bit of attention. <laughs> but, but what we realized very early on is, is the legacy of Nearest Green would not live in a book or a movie. It will be there, but that's not where it will live. When we're looking at people still knowing and talking about him and his legacy 200 years from now, the only way it could happen is if his bottle is sitting right next to Jim, Johnny, and Jack. And you've been listening to Fawn Weaver's story. What a remarkable voice. What a distinctive journey. Not fitting in, cutting out on her own, starting not one, not two, not three, but more businesses, failing, learning from that failure, applying that knowledge. Because my goodness, when we fail, we grow and we learn. And applying it all to a big move in her life from the Hollywood Hills of Los Angeles to a place called Lynchburg, Tennessee, where she started a whiskey company. And my goodness, Uncle Nearest's Premium Whiskey. There's the 1856 Premium Aged, the 1884 Small Batch. Both are still available because the 1820 Nearest Green Single Barrel Edition, well, that one sold out. Vaughn Weaver's story, a remarkable story. An American dream lived beautifully here on Our American Stories. is our American stories and our next story well we love this kind of story it comes to us from the toy and action figure museum in Paul's Valley Oklahoma that's right the toy and action figure museum its founder Kevin Stark says it's the first museum to be entirely dedicated to action figures take it away Kevin my name is Kevin Stark. I am the curator and executive director of the Toy and Action Figure Museum and also the founder of the museum. And I got started, gosh, I started collecting toys a long time ago, back in 1986. The girlfriend I had at the time drug me to an antique flea market. And uh, I didn't really want to go spend the afternoon looking at antiques, but they had all these cool toys and they were cheap. And so I came out with an armload of toys and. And I said, wow, that was, that was fun. When are we going back? She said, well, it happens every month. And I was like, oh, cool. <laughs> so I started collecting toys and, and I amassed this huge collection. But even as a kid, I had convinced my parents to let me clean out our basement so that that could be my private play area. And I shared a room with two brothers. So when my brothers found out that my parents thought that was a great idea, you know, they were a little upset with me over it, but my dad said, hey, he came up with the idea and he cleaned it up, so, you know, get lost. <laughs> and I had gotten a job when I was like 10 years old in order for me to be able to go and buy my own toys. 
So I've actually been collecting, you know, really since I was 10. <laughs> but I've just always been attracted to toys. Always enjoyed them and liked them. And then when I'm, you know, when it became my business to actually design them, all the better. In 1990, I got a call to design toys. It was actually a guy I went to school with, and he calls and says, how would you like to design toys for the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? And I was like, you wouldn't believe what I'm sitting around right now. So I'd already been collecting for four or five years. He didn't know I was a collector, you know. I didn't know he was a designer, and so we just got together and he said, can you be in L.A. on Monday morning at 9 a.m. for a flight to L.A.? And I was like, you bet I can. <laughs> he had been working for small toy companies, and every time the toy companies got bought out, he lost his job. So he decided to start his own company that would do design work, but mostly write copy for the action figures and toys. and create the accessories that go in them. And that's a lot of what we did. We would create uh, sewer maps for the turtles. A lot of the extra things, you know, that went in with the toys. We worked for a lot of different toy companies that don't have an in-house design team. Big, huge companies like Mattel and Hasbro and Kenner. And so a company would come to us and say, we need this designed, or we need, like in the case of Toonsylvania, that we did for Spielberg and, and Toy Island was like, we need you to design this line based on a cartoon series. And so that's what we did. We would look at the characters and come up with different ways that uh, they could make toys. Everything from plush toys to wind-ups to action figures to play sets. And of course, we would come up with it. You then had to send the drawings over to the company. They would say yay or nay, or they'd make changes here and there. A lot of times we didn't have a lot of time to do it. The deadlines a lot of times were really quick and really short. One toy line in particular, The Mummy, we did for the Universal Studios movie. We had, I think, two weeks to design and get some sculpts done before the New York Toy Fair. They kind of went for a long time, no, we're not gonna do toys, not gonna do toys. And then two or three weeks before, they said, oh, we're gonna do toys. Can you guys knock this out? And so we were working 24 hours a day, taking like little cat naps on my couch in my office and, you know, getting up and doing more drawing. So sometimes it's very fast work and other times you have lots of time. So, you know, it just varied with the project. I point out to people that come here, there are a lot of doll museums and there are a lot of toy museums, but we are really basically an action figure museum. Our focus is the design and sculpting and art of action figures. So even though we have toys too, most of them relate somehow to action figures, you know, in the way of play sets or vehicles or things like that. So that's what makes us different. And we have over 13,000 action figures in the collection. Most of the collection, 90% of what you see in the museum is from my private collection, but we do get some things donated. You know, a funny thing is people say, oh, you must do eBay a lot. I never do eBay. I mean, very rarely have I ever picked anything up on eBay. I personally prefer to go out and see 
the things I'm purchasing. I like to hold it in my hand and say, is this what I want? And purchase it like that. that that's just what I prefer. Because to, to me, I like the hunt. So really, I go on what I call toy safari. We got a call from a lady in Arkansas one time, and I didn't talk to her, but one of our board members did. And so he calls me up and he says, you want to go on a road trip? And I was like, what are we talking about? Well, this lady said she had this toy collection she just wanted to donate to the museum. And I said, well, what are we talking about? He said, well, he didn't really know. He said he tried to get her to send pictures and she didn't really know how to do that on her phone. So she only sent like three or four pictures that were of these little tiny figures on shelves, you know. So we just hop in my Toyota 4Runner and drive all the way to Arkansas. Well, she had so much stuff that we piled it all in my car, drove back to Pauls Valley, Oklahoma, rented a huge U-Haul truck and went back, still filled that up and my car again because we had no idea what we were getting into. It was her husband's collection and he had passed away and wanted the stuff donated to the museum. And we were like, are you sure you want to do this? Because, you know, we told her she could sell this stuff on eBay or whatever. And she said, no. She said, I'm actually a very minimalist person. I just want all this stuff out of here. <laughs> and, and it was funny because the whole house was packed with toys. And she here was telling me she liked to live very, you know, spartanly. <laughs> My wife and I went to a garage sale one time here in Paul's Valley, and uh, the family, it was just, you know, the, the couple, they had a daughter, and we were mostly going to the garage sale for my wife. You know, she was checking stuff out. Well, they had all these cool boy toys. I'm talking about great stuff that was worth a lot of money, and I was just putting everything in my arms trying to, you know, pick it all up, and my wife was clear across the way visiting with somebody and I was like come here come here you know I said we need to get this stuff <laughs> well it turned out the, that the father always wanted a, a little boy and he got a little girl so it, he was just buying her boy toys too you know and uh, I think because he liked them so I just picked up a lot of really great stuff for next to nothing for garage sale prices and uh, was very happy to, to get them and they're all in the museum right now some of my favorite exhibits in the museum deal with my favorite character, which is Batman. <laughs> in fact, we have a whole bat cave devoted to just Batman. So there are a lot of figures there. And we created a World War II display, which we had both the European campaign and the Pacific campaign all done in 12-inch tall action figures. But we built buildings and everything in order to create a diorama of these action figures and recreated the World War II scenes. Well, the older generation of people who would come in here, they loved that because they could relate to that. And a lot of uh, old World War II veterans. And in fact, we had one guy come in who these figures we used are not G.I. Joe's specifically. Some of them are from other companies that are very much accurate figures from World War II. Anyway, this one figure has a shoulder patch on it, which was a paratrooper outfit, paratrooper unit. Well, that, that guy, that was his unit. 
okay? <laughs> he couldn't believe that we had an action figure of his unit in World War II. He was just blown away, and we had a great time talking about it. Most everyone finds something that they can relate to and uh, that, that they're amazed at, you know. Uh, we have people who come in and think, you know, why do I want to be in here? I'm, I'm only here because my husband's here or whatever. And, and then they see stuff they had as a kid. And really, we're less about toys and more about nostalgia, more about your childhood. People come in here, they almost always leave happy, you know. <laughs> so that's always a great thing. And you've been listening to Kevin Stark, and he is the founder of the Toy and Action Figure Museum in Paul's Valley, Oklahoma. And that's about an hour due south of Oklahoma City. So if you're ever in the neighborhood, check it out. And he's so right. These action figures are about so much more than the actual material figure. They bring back memories. It's like music itself brings you back to a place. And and it makes you happy going into a place like this. We love telling stories about folks like Kevin Stark. 13,000 action figures, most from his own private collection. And my goodness, that, that wife seemed to be real happy to get rid of all of her husband's stuff, the things we live with when we're in love and when we're married. Again, the first museum of its kind dedicated to action figures. Yes, there are doll museums. Yes, there are toy museums. But in Kevin Stark's mind, he had to be the world's first museum dedicated to action figures. His story, the story of a museum of a man's making, here on Our American Stories.